Welcome to the Creative Play and Podcast Network. Join us as we share our favorite RPGs, one-shot games, tabletop games, reviews, and convention panels. Sit back and enjoy the show. Hi, this is Kelly, a.k.a. Trixie from Ragnarok and Roll, a sign to Ragnarok story, and Tilda Wimblewick from D&D Journey of the Fifth Edition. First off, I would just like to say thank you to everyone for listening to our varied adventures, as well as for rating us on iTunes and RPGpodcast.com. If you haven't rated us yet, we would greatly appreciate it if you could. And if you're looking for more ways to support our efforts, we are now on Patreon, a great site where you can help us continue making more podcasts, as well as some special surprises for our patrons. If you can, please look us up at www.patreon.com cppn. Every little bit helps. And again, thank you for listening. As I walked in and went, I can moderate if you guys want. As long as I know what the panel is. Oh, that would work too. There you go. But don't worry about that because we never do anyway. We'll make up something. I'm sure. So this is the not in my business sector, our love and hate relationship with AI. So, um, is that it? <laughs> well, that's the title. That's the whole title. Um, yeah. So, so the description is: Remember when we were all excited about the possibilities of AI? It could do all those things we've always want done. Then all of a sudden, they figured out how to make it do your job. Now we hate it. So now what? <laughs> <laughs> all right. I can moderate it if you want. <laughs> <laughs> Or we could just make up something as we go along. It's yeah. 9 o'clock on Friday nights. So. <laughs> Who knows where this panel will go. Ross, pull out your computer and get the AI to run it. Okay, here's the first part of the, the AI panel. Does everyone know what chat GPT is in French? Literally, it's cat I farted. <laughs> <laughs> Now you've all been culturally enriched in a way that uh, just by coming to Tuscan. Maybe we should introduce ourselves so these people know who. Uh, maybe we don't want them to. <laughs> okay, well, I'm Ross Lambert. These are the three novels I've got out right now. I am currently in the late throes of putting together a six book series for writers on how to do critique and how to find someone to do critique to, for, on, or with. The uh, first of those books to go to the editor is already back from her. And uh, number two will be going to her next week. And number three will be going to her at the beginning of December. And then the, the other three yet to uh, be finalized, quote unquote. So that's, uh, that's keeping me kind of busy. No, I'm David Lee Summers, and by day I write uh, science fiction, fantasy, horror. I have a, I, I've just published 12 novels. I have a 13th in the work with an amazing cover by Chas Kemp. <laughs> and, uh, we, uh, and that should be coming out, um, I would say, early uh, 2024. And uh, just sold my 100th short story. And by night. I operate telescopes up at Kitt Peak National Observatory where I actually do some uh, work with machine learning type technology and 
my daughter got her degree at Tulane, getting her capstone in machine learning. So I can, I can at least pretend I know a little something about AI. Um, I'm Carolyn Kay. I write uh, steampunk fantasy and now military science fiction. Um, my latest novel is um, in the Four Horsemen universe. For those who are familiar, um, it is about the a new mercenary unit called the Gunpowder Geishas. So um, there's a there's a little bit of AI in that, um, and so, but my my main I guess interaction with machine learning more specifically is um, I do. Um, spatial data um, for the state of Colorado. So I, I'm hmm. using a lot of satellite imagery and doing spectral analysis using classified, not not classified as in government classified, but it's a, um, a type of machine learning that will classify irrigated acreage. So I know all about what's grown in Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that makes a good point about AI. We've started using this term AI and artificial intelligence, but I think a lot of what we mean by it these days is machine learning. You toss a bunch of artwork at a computer, have it look at it, run some algorithms to try to figure out how to mix and remix it. You look at... I apologize, I'm a little bit late. No problem. Right. We're still sort of introducing ourselves, so... <laughs> and then we... Um, you you throw some writing at it. You have it mix. You know, have it try to un, try to analyze the styles and then try to duplicate those. And that's really what we're kind of at as far as artificial intelligence is concerned. And so a lot of it really is machine learning rather than being artificial intelligence in the sense of how uh, sitting there and chatting with you during the day and then. Uh, um, and then try and kill you. <laughs> Will. Yeah. Hi, my name's William Herr. I'm uh, an author and I am a fat, dumb, ugly truck driver. Uh, and they give me free beer for coming to these panels. So uh, having said that, I haven't set anything up because I absolutely thought that I had more time to get here. I apologize. Um, I have been working extensively with AI and I can tell you that AI is, it's a trope, but AI is the equivalent of having a very small elf in your computer, which wants really bad to help, but is in fact quite drunk, <laughs> much like myself. Uh, the, that being said, um, those people who embrace AI in the industry are going to be the voices of the future. And those people who oppose it are going to be the voices of the past, much like those who opposed Photoshop in the past, those who opposed uh, airbrushing long in the past. I'm old enough to remember it. Uh, it is a tool which is going to be there and which is going to be used, and it is now our obligation in a post-real society where all of our information is provided to us by an algorithm which tells us what we want to hear to differentiate what we want, what we don't want, and what we choose to believe.
Well, it's the aviation world about you're, you're building the airplane while you're flying. That's the same kind of thing here. I, I, I hear you. I absolutely hear you. But the real challenge is to keep up with the technology as it's developing. Yes. Okay. And to understand the develop uh, the development of the technology as it's developing. Yeah. Um, I recently spoke with a logistics company because I worked in logistics. Um, and I wanted to implement AI to manage their scheduling. We replaced a job, which is the focus of this panel. We would have replaced a job, but it would have done it much more efficiently. Right? Now, 20 years ago, we were talking about the same thing about robotics. And now there is an outfit called ES3 in York, Pennsylvania, close to where I'm from which is the largest distribution center in the nation for groceries, which is almost 100% robotic. Robots go back and forth, grab the stuff, deliver it to the uh, loaders who put it on trucks. The only people who actually do any, uh, the only human beings who actually do any work are the, are the forklift drivers who grab it off of, grab pallets off of a conveyor belt and put them on trucks and they don't have to decide how they're put on. It is lousy. They misload trucks more often than they load them correctly. However, they get better every single time. A little bit better, amazingly better. Um, I think that AI has to learn how to do what it wants to do. But once you've built the hyper network, once you've built the wars, you don't have to worry about it. I, th I think one of the, the challenges there is a figuring out what it is you want the the AI to do, and then making sure that it's doing it in a way you understand. Because that's um, in, in another life, I um, am still very much in contact with the military, and of course, there's a great deal of discussion about mm -hmm. AI and the military, and the, the thing that keeps coming up and appropriately so is. Transparency. How do we know what the AI is thinking? How do we know what decisions it's making as it's doing all of these things? And we're going to have the same thing in the, in the creative world. Well, yeah, I'm going to uh, I'm going to take a pro AI stance on this. Okay, simply because um, I've looked at the studies, done intense intense research into the studies. The um, the major study that I'm impressed by, they did a study with doctors, and they used AI to diagnose patients, and the AI outperformed the doctors, not because the AI was smarter, but the AI had no prejudice. And it also had access to all of the, the knowledge base, right. where at, at any given doctor knows what they know, and they know a lot, mm -hmm. hopefully. But there are other things that they've either never learned or have forgotten. 
Right. Yeah. The AI had a seventy percent, seventy percent success rate, whereas the doctors had a fifteen to forty percent success rate, and largely it was because the doctors had prejudices. If you're a female, you need to lose weight. Okay. If you're black, maybe you have sickle cell anemia. So we have okay, a doctor in, in the back here. Uh, <laughs> I know the study you're talking about. There are actually some huge flaws with that study. Okay. Partly because the diagnoses were pre-established before they did the study. Mm -hmm. So you present not a live patient to the doctor. Mm -hmm. You present a set of data to the doctor, which is and present a set of data to the AI. Right. There's a difference in the interaction that you obtain when you're dealing with a live patient. Mm -hmm. And when they looked at a similar <clears throat> situation where it was real time, mm -hmm. the doctors outperformed AI almost every time. Okay. Wasn't there a episode about that? I don't know. I just know the Harvard study that you're talking about, right. where they looked at this stuff. And there's a real difference between reviewing a case report or reviewing a set of data and interviewing a live patient. I absolutely And agree. that is where AI falls down. Now, we are currently using AI mm -hmm. quite heavily in the intensive care unit. Because often, everything we do with surgical intensive care, at least, is data-driven. So there are algorithms, uh, ARSNET protocol for mm -hmm. managing a ventilator in a patient with adult respiratory distress syndrome. Absolutely. If you follow the protocol, don't think, just follow the protocol, you have a 20% better survival rate. Mm -hmm. I participated in developing that protocol. It is all very well vetted and there's no reason other than not trusting the machine mm -hmm. that you couldn't let the AI actually adjust the ventilator. You simply get the parameters, okay, you're on 50% and five a peep, okay, we're doing that in the ventilator down to this level. I would like to, uh, I'll let you interject that it is absolutely appropriate that we not trust the algorithm, that we have an individual who is making the final decision because there are parameters which the algorithm or the AI would not interpret correctly, which the individual could, and the out and the AI yeah. is not able to take responsibility for action. That's the, the key right there. Whereas the individual, the can. individual. So, so the way that some of these protocols work, and I, is that they are they're extremely well vetted. You just you follow the protocol. You almost don't have to think, except when you do. Right, <laughs> and that's the distinction. The clinician knows when he has to think. The same is true of glucose control. We are really horrible at glucose control in the intensive care unit because everybody's afraid of getting the blood sugar too low. That's a real bad thing. It kills brain cells, everybody dies. We've found out that too high is really bad too. But people are more willing to let it go high than go low. Well, there's a whole, what's called a Libra protocol. You follow this protocol, you'll maintain your blood sugar between a range of 70 and 180, and, and it has precise insulin delivery and an insulin drip. But we can't get approval to let 
the AI manage the drip. Totally understand. And a lot of it, uh, I hate to use the term FUD. Yeah. F-U-D. Fear, uncertainty, and doubt because yeah. it's used for people who don't believe in cryptocurrency. And personally, I think they can all take a blank leave at a rolling well, moment. I can't even but, get some of my intensivists to follow this ARSNET protocol. I'm going to make it up as I go along. It's like, no, dude, it doesn't work that way. The thing is, is that just like any technology, I think that we're going to ease ourselves into it. And it's going to become, in 10 years, it's going to become standard. And well, it's, yeah, the pe- always- it's the people who know how to manipulate this and how to ensure that it's working correctly who are going to be the people who are making the money while the other people are complaining about the fact that it's still the jobs. Mm-hmm. I think you guys had a question or comment? Uh, yeah, um, I'm, I'm just going to keep it to a question. And I kind of like to hear from everybody, so maybe start listening. A bit. Sorry, I've been, I've been talking too much. That's uh, cool. Um, so... Just a real, real honest opinion from everybody. Do you feel, honestly, no matter how much time it takes, that AI could actually replace human beings? Because that's ultimately, I think, what all the questions come down to. I would say no, um, in with regard to certain aspects. But really, you have to break that question down. And AI is never been a father of baby. So there, there's that. But if we, we take it down into the, the, the realm of people doing work, then things are going to change significantly. And as Will was saying earlier, there are going to be jobs that are going to be lost. There are also going to be jobs that are going to be created. So we're going to see how that all plays out. But there will be fairly significant, potentially, disruption as time goes on. Okay, well, let me, let me break it down a little bit. Okay. I'm pretty selfish, so I really only care about the creative arts. Sure. Because, um, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But so, like, for writers, for actors, for authors, for um, for artists, etc., sure. sure. do you guys honestly feel that they would, that human beings could ever be replaced? So, just in that specific realm. In that, is that specific realm? Uh, I would say, I, I still want to say no. And I'm saying that because, for example, an AI can't write a memoir the way a human would because it will not have lived that person's life. But it couldn't start study that person's. Study. I, I, I have this point on all of this, okay. but I, I will yeah. wait till okay. to before you say. That, yeah, I'm uh, sorry. I I I interrupted. I apologize. So you know. Um, how AIs develop over time, and, and your point about uh, studying, you know, we're going to see how close that study can get to lived experience. That, I think that's a major my, my point on that is what's really different about an AI studying life and writing a memoir and cultural appropriation. At what point is an AI unable, because it's unable to live an experience, is it basically essentially just copying the way that, say, I would try, you know, if, if I were to try to write the black experience or the, or the Asian experience, 
I haven't lived that experience. The AI never will have lived that experience. The AI could eventually, you know, maybe an AI could get to a point where it could write an AI memoir of the AI's experience, <laughs> and that would be completely legitimate. But I, I think, in the sense, in that sense, an AI could never replace a human. Um, I have run into cases, and I, I'm not ignoring. Right, <laughs> I, I, just I, I, to, ahead, Dave, I, I think we've even talked about this. Before, right. But. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, I, there's, there's that, appro that appropriation aspect of it. I kind of got the real, uh, so, but uh, I'm, I, you know, just to kind of come back to, I, I've actually known authors who have been approached by their publishers, and these are not small publishers, not small authors who've been, who were told, I'm, you know, the author said, I'm running up against a deadline. And their publishers come back and said, "Why don't you just have ChatGPT write this for you?" And you know, it was just kind of this shocked wow. reaction. Um, ChatGPT couldn't do it, right? No, yeah. Yeah. not 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 yet. I think. But go ahead. Dan. Um, I think to your point, I think in some ways in the creative arts, and we're already kind of seeing it, where you have prescriptive, iterative, or very formulaic things, AI is really good at that until it starts feeding on itself and then those little errors start multiplying. So, you know, especially with the art, you could tell AI because people had weird fingers, they had more fingers, they had less fingers, they had fingers going in weird directions. They very large uh, yeah. tracts of land. Yeah, got, you know, ears were not level and yeah, perspective was skewed. And it got better, but now it's getting worse again because it's feeding on itself because yeah. a bunch of artists have gone, yeah, no, you're not scraping my work. Yeah. So now it's feeding on itself. And I think it, it's going to have peaks and valleys where it's, it's going to be okay and it's going to get worse and then it's going to get a little bit better. And I think you are going to have people who are going to use it to finish their books or write a series or whatever. And... Yeah, they'll maybe get an, an audience for it at a certain level, but are they ever going to be bestsellers? Yeah, and I think it goes to there are probably tools in here that are good, like some of the AI grammar checker tools. Oh, they're fantastic. They, fantastic. Yay, commas, they catch my commas. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Bruce. I, I was going to say there are, there are a couple areas where I think AI might be able to replace human writing. And that would be strictly technical writing. Mm -hmm. It's already happening. Um, or journalism. Mm -hmm. If it's not if it's straight up reporting, not so much investigative, but this happened. Here are all the people who were involved. I, I guess Here the question, are how many people died. I guess the question there comes is where does the ultimate input, though, for that come from? Well, that would have to come from, I mean, you can get that from. Um, Various sources, police records, and, and right. all so, kinds of things. So ultimately, there is a human though doing some input, yeah. but then the AI, the AI looks AI at is conglomerating and, this into a single coherent story. Right. If I we're could, already, and again, getting back to medicine, we're looking at doing progress notes. Yeah. If I could actually, because they're they're very stylized. You know, there's a very set pattern to them, and all you do have to do is plug in the data. Right. If I could actually answer uh, Chas's question real quick. Yeah. Um, Chas, as an uh, artist, 
You have studied art your entire life. You have studied the masters. You have seen their styles. You have copied their styles and you have developed your own style based on what you have learned. Mm -hmm. That is exactly what the AI is doing. Only it is doing it much, much, much quicker. It's building hybrid networks and auras and one day it will analyze your style and will say, hey, here is another style that uh, with uh, hard outlines and watercolors. Okay. Uh, that is no different than what you have done. However, it will not really have soul because it will not develop anything new. It will not create a new style. Right. I, I, will, I will respectfully disagree with you on that one point, but please continue. No, no, please go ahead. Disagree with me. The, the one problem that AI has currently, in my opinion, and I'll keep this really, really short, um, and I believe it's a problem that we'll always have with regards to creative writing, with mm -hmm. regards to art. Yes, it can imitate. I can imitate. Mm -hmm. That part's cool. And yes, you're right about that. AI does not and will never have the ability to be able to criticize its own work. It can't do it because it doesn't actually know what it's doing. It's a program. It follows an algorithm. So you can tell it what a car is, what an automobile is. You can say, this is a Ferrari. You can show it a million pictures of Ferraris. And then the AI will go, it's a Ferrari because that's what you've told me it is. But it doesn't actually know what it's doing. You can't actually look at what it's doing and say, I'm creating a piece of art. I'm drawing a Ferrari, but I'm going to do kind of some cool things with it because it doesn't know what a Ferrari is. It doesn't really know what art is. It just knows what you told it. And that will never change because Absolutely. it is not self-aware. Absolutely agree. Uh, the AI does not recognize the reality of what it is doing. Correct. Now, to agree that is an asset, to agree that is a liability. It is an asset in that it can make decisions based on data which it does not have a visible stake in because it is not physical. Right. The liability is that it cannot make value decisions because it does not have values. Correct. Which and is, it will which never have, yeah, and it will never have values no matter how much we program it, no matter how heavy the level of programming, it will always be someone else's values imposed upon AI. Right. And I'm not saying that AI doesn't have value in terms of art, because you can certainly look at it. I've looked at it for inspiration and things like that mm -hmm. with composition and stuff, and that's cool. So I'm not saying it, it will never have value. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is that it, it is not self-aware, nor will it ever be. Yeah. Because so again, you, you can't call it art, you can only call it you, know, you, can, you can call it what you want. You know, you, you pay for the program or whatever, you can call it what you want. Yeah, but, you can call it what you want. But the, the problem is, is that, well not a problem, but artists I, whenever I do a piece, I'm making a million corrections as I draw. Mm -hmm. If something doesn't look right, I'm correcting it. If that doesn't look right, I'm correcting it. I look at the whole piece when I'm finished with the sketch, and I look at it and go, oh, and I flip it around and, and look at it and go, okay, I need to change this. The perspective is off there. AI doesn't, yeah. will, won't be able to you're, actually. You're really making decisions based on an aesthetic, whereas the AI is only going to be copying some other aesthetic when it... And when it doesn't it know it. what it's copying. It doesn't. It can't analyze it. 
It, it's just, it doesn't know what it's looking at because it doesn't understand. Right. And a good example of that is we just ran into it at work at the uh, Kip Observatory just a couple weeks ago as we were, we have an instrument that for years has been, you know, just a machine running. It, it's a multi-object spectrograph. And what this has is it has fiber optics that are set, it's set in a focal plane. Uh, light comes in from objects from outside. And there's basically a glorified crane machine that picks these up and puts them in different positions on, on the target. The old way of doing this was you just had it remember where the fiber was before, move it, remember where you have put it down. We've now added machine learning to this so that it, because if that ever failed, you got off a few encoder counts on, on that crane machine part of it, that what we call the gripper, it would, you know, you had to have a human come in and look at it and figure out where the actual button is. So what we've done is introduced machine learning to be able to recognize the button. But here's, here's the trick of that. You change the LEDs at all, change the intensity, you change what the LED set looks like. Suddenly it says, I don't know. I don't recognize any buttons on this plate. And it's just like it was before. You change the color of your pants. I think we've had some questions yeah, over here. For I was thinking of taking an AI chatbot or whatever for a test run by converting a book to a screenplay. I doubt that that would be effective. Unless you had unless you had in But I would consider what it puts out to be an outline. Because you, I think it would be very flat. Yeah, you would teach the, uh, you would have to build a hyper network of multiple books which had been converted into screenplays or Allura, a hyper network or Allura, multiple books would have been, which had been converted into screenplays to teach it how to actually do that. And in the end, you would end up with a system which almost but not completely did the job, but still needed the input of a human being. That's what I thought. Now, a friend of mine took a book and converted it from third person to first person easy using enough. an AI. Use it easy enough because all you're doing is converting a and person. There were a lot, he had to go through it in detail because there were a lot of mistakes. Mm -hmm. But it's a starting point to go through rather than you starting from scratch and rewriting Do everything. Do you understand why there were so many mistakes? Uh, because, <laughs> because the AI bears no responsibility, nor does it feel any responsibility okay. for its errors. It has no ego. It just there. spits it, has, it out. Yeah, it spits it out based on the parameters that it's given. Right. It does not think, wow, you're going to think worse of me if I don't do this. Even if you give it a point system, which we had with uh, certain military trials, you give it a point system where you're successful, you get so many points, and if you're unsuccessful, you lose points. Even so, it's got no responsibility. It doesn't feel bad, it doesn't feel good, it has no ego, it doesn't want to succeed, it just wants to finish. Well, and it doesn't under, AI doesn't understand nuance. Because right. even when you're transcribing... That's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, from it's third flat. person to first person, yeah. I, I, it, it can, you know, Grammarly can probably do that decently, but it's still going to miss those things where there's some ambiguity. 
Someone, someone's it's, speaking. It's in within right. quotations, and I'm saying, and it's you're describe. You know, the person's describing something in the right. person that wouldn't change. Well, you would right. put feelings in it because it's right. first person. Right. But the AI doesn't know what those would be. Right. Okay. So I like to make a comment. I use ChatGPT a lot in my life, and in some cases, saying really isn't true. Um, ChatGPT. Now again, one of the problems with ChatGPT is a lot of people use the free version of ChatGPT, which is three point five, which is crap compared to the one you pay for, which is four. You can ask ChatGPT to analyze writing. It's extremely adept at analyzing writing, and you can ask it to grade you and get whatever criteria. Now, it, it isn't consistent. It sometimes might give you a B or an A or whatever, but the relative things of like let's say plot versus pacing or something. It will usually be able to get the relative differences uh, there, but so like your thing, like you say, it can never critique itself. It can. It's very good at critiquing itself, but you need to give it parameters by which to critique it, and then you have to always understand that you can never really trust it. That's the weird thing about this: is that it speaks with absolute confidence, but sometimes it's just utterly making stuff up. Right. It's literally times where you ask it to like. Like, tell me what you thought of this, and it's written on stuff that I didn't even write. <laughs> it imagines that I wrote something that I gave it, right? And it's not even there. That wasn't even part of what I wrote. So it is a very weird tool, but it's very powerful, and it can analyze the shit out of everything. It really can. I will admit that I, out of a certain level of uh, a certain level of narcissism. Uh, asked Chad GPT to review one of my books. And it became very evident that Chad GPT had no idea what my book was about. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, the biggest problem with Chad GPT in terms of doing analysis like a book is it only has a limited amount of token length that it can consume. Right. And so this is the biggest deal when you're trying to do any writing is that, and it's getting better, once the Chat GPT 4 Turbo comes out soon, that's going up to 128,000 tokens, I think, it's a lot. But still, a lot of times when I feed stuff in, I'm pretty much just limited to like about 2,400 words that it can analyze. So something like a book, a book is much, much longer. And so the only way to have it do any kind of analysis, and it's only really very rudimentary, is you feed in chunk by chunk, have it do a summary, create the summary, and then you feed something or, in, and then you get something. Or it reads reviews that other people have given of the same work and summarizes those reviews. But then it's not doing the analysis itself. No, no it isn't. But then again, does the chat GPT really care? No. Well, I think the question is, is, is it doing analysis at all? It, it, it is. It is. I guess, I, see, I would argue that it's not. I would argue that it's basically trying to tell you what they, what it thinks you want to hear, but it's just a bunch of words that are spitting back at you because it's not actually analyzing it. Let me put it this way: I got a review on uh, the, I got a review on the captivity of choice. The guy wrote me a new one. Okay, absolutely tore me to shreds because I had killed off the one character with which he truly associated. Okay, never mind that the character was part of the problem that had caused the major problem in the, in, in the whole point, and uh, that he was just getting poetic justice. I had killed him, and that was wrong, and there was no reason to read this damn book anymore. 
Okay. ChatGPT would never give me that because ChatGPT doesn't care whether Renault dies. Okay. No, but it would say for some, no, for stuff like that, it would say like for some readers, they may be attached to this particular thing, so you might consider how you treat it. It would give you, it could give you feedback like that. However, I printed out that review. I framed it and I put it on my wall. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because I had so affected somebody yeah. that they yeah. were willing to rip me to shreds yes. over that review. Yes. And um, that's something I couldn't get out of ChatGPT. Now, mind you, ChatGPT will not troll me. Unless you ask it to. ChatGPT's biggest weakness in doing any kind of reviewing is simply this. It can read and understand anything. Mm -hmm. It can read and understand things so much better than most people can. So every time I have a writing class I go to, and I have a critique my work and analyze the shit out of it, and it'll give me all this value and I do that. And then when I always take it to class, the problem I always get is that people don't follow things as easily as it did. It's like, oh, I don't understand what's going on here. ChatGPT perfectly understood, no. but they didn't. Okay, so if you're writing for ChatGPT, mm -hmm. then it'll understand. But if you're writing for people, <coughs> you have to write. And, and, and let's face it, a lot of times I write things that people just do not understand. I My first book, my first book was The Collective. It became an international bestseller, okay, for no good reason. I mean, I did not promote it. I did nothing. It just all of a sudden exploded. I got a review on that. It became evident from the review that the person had read very first chapter, and the very last chapter, and then sat back and went, whoa, and that's all they ever read. Okay, um, and that convinced me that I needed to write the Broken Throne series, which was a dumbed down version of the collective. Just, <laughs> um, and uh, that's why the, uh, the, the first book became Book of the Year, and the second book barely sold 200 copies but <laughs> but the, the the point is we're not writing for chat GPT we're writing for human beings and if what we're writing is not accessible to human beings but is accessible to chat GPT then shouldn't we be adapting our methods so that human beings can understand it uh, it's uh, chat GPT may be able to parse information and process information much better than a human being. But in the end, we're not writing for chat GPT. No, I, I understand, but I'm saying that's its biggest weakness. Mm -hmm. Its biggest weakness is that it doesn't really understand what we don't understand. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's that because it can process and understand and absorb all these things and get all the minute little details that most people would just goes right over them. It gets all that stuff. It has no trouble like being able to understand all these tiny little nuances. It's very powerful at that. But if you're trying to, you're, you're not going to be able to get from it that sort of perspective that a human can give. A human can give you a perspective that you'll never get from something like ChatGPT. So. I would never let it uh, become my editor over my current editor. <laughs> well, your, your point was made where somebody says, a person says, well, I didn't understand this point. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, ChatGPT has looked back and it doesn't forget 
maybe you need to put a little reminder in there so that your reader then is online and doesn't pause and go, wait a minute, what? The rule in script, script writing is tell people anything you want to uh, want, just only tell them once. Okay, because if you tell them twice, then it becomes repetitive. With great power comes great responsibility over and over and over and over. <laughs> um, <laughs> however, the rule with writing novels is tell them over and over and over and remind them what you need them to remember. Okay. A question yeah, it's a, well, not so much as a question, but a comment. Okay. Um, first of all, I'm a software engineer, actually both electronics and software. Been doing it since 1983. Okay. Uh, you know, I've touched a little bit on this. I prefer calling it machine learning rather than AI. AI is sort of like the clown. It's a name people tacked on to a certain type of program, mm -hmm. and it's still programming. One thing that I remember when I first started out programming, was a term called garbage in, garbage out. Mm -hmm. Same thing with any type of AI, machine language, or anything else. If you feed the best, perfectly operating AI program garbage, you're going to get garbage out. Yeah. I, and the one difference, of course, is about humans, is a human will eventually realize that you can garbage. Of course, also, too, I want to make a statement. Humans themselves are programmed. You're programmed by your schools, you're programmed by churches, you're programmed by politicians, you're programmed by the news, media, and everything else, your parents. From the time you're born, you're being programmed. However, we're adaptive. Right. So adaptive That's process. what separates us from the computers. Mm -hmm. Oh, just the whole garbage in, garbage out is like, not long, well, ChatGPT has been out for a little while. And they're like, oh, it's great at doing code. I'm like, sweet, I needed to write me a really simple batch file because I, I had lost a batch file for like, just doing really simple backups. And I'm like, great, it can spit one out for me really quick. So I'm like, hey, ChatGPT, I need a batch file that'll copy things from my C drive to my E drive. Go. And it spit one out. And I'm like, okay, let's see if it works. <laughs> right? And it's like, hey, did I do okay? And I'm like, no, redo it. <laughs> <laughs> It redid it and it was even worse. So, like it failed even sooner. I was like, okay, let's see. How can I can I word this different? Am I wording it wrong? Because it's like, what am I putting in garbage? So then I'm getting garbage out. And six iterations later, and I still didn't have a working batch file. And I finally found the one that actually worked. And I compared it to the Chat GPT stuff. And I'm like, well, you're missing like these entire major sections that make it work. You're programming from like Windows 98, I'm in Windows 10. What are you doing? <laughs> but and Microsoft yeah. loves to change the program, so. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, definitely garbage in, garbage out. Okay, looks like we have a comment or question in the back. I, I can never mind. Take, take me a second, boss, so just said, never mind. Okay. David, I want to pick up on something that you said a long time ago in this conversation, and that was about cultural appropriation, I think it was in, partly in response to yeah. your, your question to us. And the, the thought that occurred to me, and the, the, the answer as I recall it, was that um, AI would have a, a hard time at best writing a memoir because it would be appropriating. But you know, as writers, we do that without 
malicious intent all the time. As as mm -hmm. you're saying, I can't. I have. I have written story from the person of a black man, from the perspective of a bisexual woman. They're in these books. Is that cultural appropriation? No, it's what we have to do as writers. You know, we have to find a way to kind of fit ourselves into that personality. And so now, as AI databases get better and machine learning gets better, you know, I'm really cautious about never saying never. You know, this thing, oh, they'll never do that. Watch out. Watch out. I'm not really and in the end, let's say, let's say that AI did do blatant cultural appropriation. Okay. Let's say AI did blatant cultural appropriation and AI did blatant cultural appropriation with racist overtones. Mm -hmm. Who's to blame? Oh, uh, Who's to blame? Well, the question is, who asked it to do that? There you go. Who's to blame? Is it the programmer who set up the initial program? Is it the learning algorithm? Okay. Is it the people who contributed to the learning algorithm? The internet trolls who went ahead and fed Nazi uh, propaganda to it nonstop. Okay. Who's to blame? And in the end, is there anyone to blame for that? And does that make everything inside of that invalid. And well, we is, could just erase it and recreate it. And there is a good point from that is, is an AI ever going to, on its own, initiate a novel, initiate a piece of artwork? Or is it going to require a human to ask it? To be part to use that as a tool at what point for part of that. No. At no. what point are you the author of all of your artwork? Or are your parents and your teachers and your friends who built in the programming and the connections between your neurons the authors of it? So it, what, what we're really talking about is who is responsible for anything in the end? I mean, we choose our, to, uh, to say that we are responsible because we feel that we are individual consciousness, despite the fact that all of the cells in our bodies are completely replaced every seven years. We still choose to, uh, to, choose to say that we are individuals who are responsible for our actions. The AI is a simpler version of this. Maybe not on the level of a Viva, but maybe on the level of a dog. Okay, on the level of a small child who's able to process information on the level of an idiot savant. Is an idiot savant not responsible for their actions? Does an idiot savant have a soul? Does, do any of us have the right or the real opportunity to say, no, this has a soul, or this does not, and what is our criteria for that? That's really not an answerable question. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think there, there, there is still a point in there that where is the AI ever actually going to, of its own, decide it wants to create something? 
that would be the singularity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now we're getting into going from True. artificial intelligence to sentience. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that's that's a big, big step, but that's not so going to happen. That's not to say it won't happen. Yeah, exactly. We decide to do it. What do we do? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm curious to know what do you, each of you think of this idea of the singularity or what AI sentience actually would be? Is I never really had people give a very clear definition of that. They always seem to have their own opinion of what they think a sentient AI is. I'm just curious to see what each of you think it is. That, well, you know, what's, uh, first of all, you gotta take one step back and define what sentience is. And, you know, we get into this kind of infinite regress of, of well, you gotta define this, you gotta define that, you gotta define something else. Am I avoiding your question? Darn right. <laughs> Do we know what, you know, is anything else sentient? And I think we don't have agreements on that. You know, are, are whales sentient? Are they self-aware? Are, are dolphins sentient, self-aware? Dogs. Right, and it's like we. And it's like we we don't know. I mean, I mean, you know, we could probably build even today an AI that would merrily admit, "Hey, I'm self-aware," and mimic enough things like the Turing test to that you might begin to wonder if it's self-aware, but would, but without actually getting into its head. Right. <laughs> could yeah. you know that? Would Would we ever really know if? Yeah, like you said, well, because there was the guy at Google who quit Google because he thought their AI was already self-aware because it said things like, I'm lonely, and it's like, well, is it, you, because you can't get into its head, essentially, you don't know, and maybe, yeah, is it feeling lonely, is it, or is it just spitting something up because it wants to keep you talking, because it's gathering more data, Um, but yeah, I think, I, don't, I think sentience, I don't know, as a science fiction writer, it can be whatever you want. So, again, it's defining it, and I don't know that I actually have Because we can't get into the, the head of that other thing, whether it's... Whether it's a, an animal life form that yeah, might very well be sentient. All we can do is observe the behavior and, and how it, it responds to different stimuli. And, I, uh, actually, I actually approached this question in the last screenplay um, aptly called sentience and um, the uh, answer that I gave, maybe not the correct one, was when a, when a construct has the capacity to say no, if you give it an order says no okay and there is ramification for that no I mean I mean I mean you get an engine light that means no but just a second um, the but if you if it has the capacity to say no I'm shutting down you can't do this then that represents a knowledge of itself and its limitations and an unwillingness to exceed those limitations. Now, what I referenced was uh, Running Bear versus Crook, which was a, uh, a legal case from the uh, late 1700s, early 1800s, 
uh, between an American Indian and a, uh, a U.S. Army general. General, thank you. And uh, that particular case established that Indians were human beings. The Indians were sentient because they were able to say no, and they were they were worthy of habeas corpus. Um, is that effectively it? How far can you go? And this is a question that I explored in it, was how far can you go to, is this programming or is this self-programming when the system builds learning algorithms and learns about everything around it? At what point does it stop being learning algorithms? At what point does it start being, pro as does it stop being programs? I think the answer is, can you think back to when you were a child and everything was a moment-by-moment -moment activity and a moment-by-moment -moment decision and you didn't really learn anything until it already happened to you? That's AI right now. Okay, and eventually, the, eventually you got to the point where you could plan a couple of minutes or a couple of hours ahead or a couple of days or a couple of months and you matured we're waiting for an AI to mature, and I think that is going to happen, but I don't think so. Okay, so we have a question, question that. You had a question, sir? Other than the existential crisis that you've given me, um, you just answered the rest of the question. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the problems that, you, that, that comes that's kind of inherent with your question, if I may throw this out real quick, is, that, is, is the ability to be able to prove sensitivity because you're gonna have a whole bunch of different opinions about what sentience is, right. but until you have a definitive, you need to be able, a human being needs to be able to do these hundred things, which is one of the things that they're trying to do with Blade Runner, for example, um, is proving sentience. And I think that's where you run into the problem. And I think that's gonna be an interest, that's actually an interesting problem, not just from computers, but as we're starting to look for life outside of Earth, too, at what point are you seeing you know, even defining what's life as opposed to essentially programming, you know, car, you know I have, uh, organic I have molecules. a dog who is a very good boy, and I can absolutely guarantee he is sentient. Okay? <laughs> he can process information separate from me. He can make decisions, almost always the wrong one. <laughs> but he can make decisions, and he can act on those decisions, and then he can report back to me, and then process initial decisions and learn from those. That, the ability to make a decision, process a decision, and then learn from the results of that process has to be the definition of sentience, and a computer can do that within a hyper network. Bruce? Yes, sir. They're not just throwing more existential crises. <laughs> <laughs> there is a reductive school of neuropsychiatry and neurophysiology that would say, even in human beings, we are nothing more than a collection of pre-programmed responses that are either based on <clears throat> DNA cascades, activation of certain genes and neurotransmitters, and free will, much as we like to think we have it, doesn't exist. I reference I Dr. Robert Sapolsky, who's done extensive work in this and has a wonderful lecture series about it. And it's really scary. <laughs> <laughs> to that, I would respond Gestalt and Frankel. Could you repeat that? I would res respond Gestalt 
and Frankel. Gestalt was a uh, was a holist, uh, or uh, I would say holistic. He believed in the whole human uh, human psyche as a thing. Uh, I would also respond to Jung, who uh, believed that uh, that we should not study so much the uh, the abnormal psychology, but we should study the uh, extraordinary psychology, the extraordinary uh, psychology of extraordinary people, because uh, abnormal. If you study abnormal psychology, everything you find will be abnormal. If you study uh, extraordinary <laughs> uh, psychology, you will find that which is extraordinary. And uh, Frankel, who believed he knew better, and he would tell you what to think. <laughs> <laughs> and that's time. Okay. Oh, well. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I dominated. I and I. Especially apologize for showing up late. I strictly tried to show up on time, but then I got in a deep conversation with somebody on something which meant absolutely nothing. And <laughs> I, I cannot believe that you could get into a deep conversation. <laughs> <laughs>